Successful people, that, people that really do succeed in their, in their goals and in life are the types of people that say, look, I am the type of person, I have the mindset of a person who wakes up in the morning because it's what I do. It's a part of who I am. The mindset is what makes all the difference in the world. See, successful people just think differently. I also believe that successful churches think differently. What does it mean to be a successful church? I mean, how can you even say that? Don't we all love Jesus? Don't we all come to church to just worship? Here's the thing. In America alone, this year, every single church has a worship service, just like we do. Every single church does either Sunday school or groups or whatever they call it, there's some kind of small group component. Every single church in America has got some kind of programming for the kids, maybe even for the teenagers, just like us. But this week, somewhere between 75 and 100 churches, somewhere in America, closed their doors for the very last time. And that happened this week, and it will happen again next week. Between 75 and 100 more churches will close their doors for the very last time. And then it will happen the following week, and the following week, and the following week after that. Somewhere between 75 and 100 congregations shut their doors every single week. In America, not the world, just the United States. Somewhere between four to 5,000 churches by very conservative estimates because there's so many different denominations and styles of churches, we don't even know how to count them all, will close their doors. So success matters. So how do we succeed as a church? Successful people think differently. I would say successful churches think differently. Now, be careful. Let's hear the nuance. Because what I'm not saying is that what we need to do is become, you know, six flags over Jesus or anything like that, you know, with laser lights everywhere and a comedian on the stage every week, rah, rah, sis, boom, bah. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's an actual picture, by the way. (laughs) It doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, Castro's didn't exactly exist. No. No, so what happened in Arkansas, there was a church that was getting to ready to build. And it was one of those that's built, just build it bigger no matter what kind of churches. And a local atheist decided he wanted to make sure that his notion that the church is an empty place of empty people was spread. And so he crafted this. And you know what? I understand. I get it. For some people, for some churches, their idea and the reason why they exist is only for themselves. There's a problem with that. There's a reason why there's a problem with that. There's a very biblical reason for that. They're not healthy. They're not vibrant. They're not successful. So what does a successful church look like? Well, 
I think it looks like this. I think it looks like a church that loves God. That whenever we come, we come passionately to worship a God who loves us no matter what. I think a successful church is one that loves others. That whenever we recognize and see the love of God in our life, it makes us more willing to love somebody else regardless of what's going on in their life. And that a successful church serves the world. It's a mindset. Your behaviors are a result of your habits and your habits are a result of your mindset. So I believe there's three different mindsets that we need to have in order to be a successful church. If you're new to us as a church, understand that we're in a little bit of a unique situation in the life of our church. We're between, law, we're between pastors. We're looking for a new pastor. And so our church is actively praying for our pastor search team to continue to do the work, the hard work that it takes to find another pastor. But that doesn't mean that the work and the success of the church stops because it's a mindset. And so we need to have the right mindset. I believe there's three different mindsets that we need to have. The first is that successful churches invest in their community and invite someone to join. We're going to talk about that today, that successful churches invest in their community and invite someone to join. Number two, I believe successful churches increase generosity of time, talents, and treasures. Now, I don't mean by manipulation or guilt, but because there's a compelling mission, a clear, compelling vision of where that church is going and how they are going to be a blessing to others. And third, I believe after many, so I've had conversations with, goodness, hundreds of other pastors at hundreds of other churches from California to Oregon to New Jersey to Florida. These three things are consistent. They invest in their community. They increase generosity. And the third one, they invest heavily in the next generation. So we're going to talk about all three of those things over the next three weeks. If you miss one of the messages, catch it online. Online audience, thanks for being there. Appreciate it. That online uh, service is actually hosted. So if you need to have a, que have a question or, or a prayer request, there's somebody going to be there typing while I'm talking, okay? So you can just jump in right over there. Also, what we're going to do as we go through this message, make sure you head over, grab your Bible device or, or, or your phone, and, and, and go to fcbc.live slash notes. Because there's going to be more than what I can say in the notes. The scripture passages are there and all that kind of stuff. But you can find that online, all right? But what I want to do is I want to kind of dive deeply into a Bible passage that, that's easy to kind of skip over. It's easy to jump in and jump right back out. It's called the parable of the talents. Now, again, if you are new to church and new to Christianity, a couple of those words don't make any sense, probably. A parable is nothing more than a simple story, true or made up, doesn't matter, because the point of it isn't the story itself. The point of the story is to illustrate a deeper truth. That's what a parable is. And a talent is nothing more than a, a, a measure of money. Whenever I was doing the research for it, I was reading a bunch of different scholars, and they have no idea what a talent is, but the general consensus was that a talent is something like about 20 years of the wages for an average worker, okay? 20 years. 
So what, I, what you'll read in this version that I have here is bag of silver. That makes, means about the same thing. So a talent, a bag of silver, about 20 years of wages. So if the average wage in America right now is about $53,000, we'll just make the math easy and go $50,000. So a, a talent or a bag of silver, about a million dollars. Okay, and then we can do the math after that, okay? So let's do this. Let's jump into this passage. It's chap- Matthew chapter 25. We're going to pick up in verse 14, okay? So if you've got a Bible or Bible device, uh, or what we'll do actually is we'll put the verses up on the wall so that you can follow along. Matthew chapter 25, picking up in verse 14. Again, Jesus is talking here. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. He gave five bags of silver to one two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities. And then he left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earn five more. The servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid the master's money. And that's just the point whenever you're supposed to go, dun, dun, dun. Jesus continues. He says, after a long time, the remaster returned from his trip and called them to give an account of how they had used his money. The servant to whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, I've earned five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant who had received the two bags of silver came forward and said, Master, uh, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount, so now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, investing crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here is your money back. The master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you at least deposit my money in the bank? I could have gotten some interest on it. And then he ordered, take the money from this servant and give it to the one with the 10 bags of silver. For to those who use well what they are given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now, throw this useless servant out into utter darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's three building blocks I want to kind of take a look at as we talk about this idea of investing in the community and what God thinks about how important it is for us to be doing his work. The first is that this was an extravagant gift that reflects an extravagantly generous master. Now, I told you 
the talent or a bag of silver was going to be roughly about 20 years worth of wages or roughly about a million dollars. So we can do the math. Two bags of silver, two talents, two million dollars. Five bags of silver, five talents, ten million dollars. All right. So Jesus tells this story, not for the point of the story, but so that we can learn something from it, so we can take application out of it. So let's, let's just do that for a minute. Put yourself in the shoes of the servant that received $10 million. What do you do? Partay! What do you do? You've been given an enormously extravagant gift. What do you do with it that matters, doesn't it? What have you been given today, outside of the story? Whether you believe it or not, God's given you some amazing gifts. And we sometimes ignore them, or we diminish them. God has wired each of you a certain way, with a certain personality and temperament. That's not something that is a liability for you whether you're an introvert or extrovert, whether you're a people person or a task person, God wired you on purpose. Who you are, down to your very temperament and personality, is an absolute gift from God. Your skill set, the things that you do well, those are gifts from God. You learn to do them, you develop them. Some people will tell me, no, 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 no actually, actually, that, I earned that. Hard sweat, toil, years. And I would turn around and say, God gave you the ability to earn that. God gave you the time to do that. Everything above nothing is a gift from God. So your skill set, your talents are a gift from God. James chapter 1 says, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming from God. Romans chapter 11 says that for everything comes from God, exists by his power, is intended for his glory. You know what else is a gift? An extravagant gift. Your salvation. I don't have it on to display on the, on the screen here, but let me read to you this passage out of Ephesians. It's one of my absolute favorites. It's one of those passages that chokes me up every time I read it. It's Ephesians chapter two. I'm gonna pick up in verse four. It says, but God, so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. 
Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us new in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. The longer I am alive, the more I slow down and think about my own life. the more I understand how incredibly gracious and extravagant the gift of forgiveness is for me. Whenever I am emotionally and spiritually healthy and I examine myself, not just my behaviors, but my attitudes, my thoughts, my motivations, I am blown away by the extravagance of God. If you've never experienced that kind of extravagant love, I would love to talk with you at the end of the service. I would love to be able to share with you what it looks like that a God would love you enough to send his son to die on a cross, rescue you from your sins, and then have the unmitigated gall to call you Friend, because you, with the Holy Spirit living inside of you, are a masterpiece of God. The extravagant master has an extravagant gift, and that's you. A successful church has a mindset that every, 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 member is an extravagant gift from God and will not abuse that gift. The second thing I want you to notice is that there's a compelling purpose behind the story. That there's a compelling purpose to what the master is doing. The master is leaving on a trip And he's leaving behind three servants with an extravagant gift to then do something with it. What does that look like here? Well, it looks like us being blessed by God to be a blessing for someone else. That is a theme that runs through all of the scriptures. You can go all the way back to Genesis and the story of Abraham. And God says, look, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I want you to turn around and then bless other people. And then it weaves itself all the way through the nation of Israel. Look, I'm blessing you to be a blessing to others. I'm blessing you to be a blessing to others. Then Jesus picks up on that and says, look, you're supposed to be a blessing to others, both in your congregation and out. Both in your community and for those who hate your community. Some of my best friends hate my faith. They don't understand it. They think it's infantile and beneath them. And yet, whenever we get together, we have a good time. Why? 
because God has blessed me with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And if I express that to them, they're given the gift too. They don't even know it. It's awesome. One of the reasons why we do a Love Jacks event roughly every month is because this community that's out here needs to understand that regardless of whether they share our faith, we share a space. And that even though God blesses us, as he does, there's an abundance of that blessing. There's so much of God's blessing in us and for us that we can't help but share it with someone else. And the end story looks like this. Coming out of Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will, I love this, he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain. All of these things are gone forever. The same God who's going to put death to death is the same God who loves you. And the same God who expects you to turn that love and show it and point it to somebody else. Not just individually, not just me, not just you, but us as a community, us as a congregation, us as a church. It's a collective thing as much as it is an individual thing. So successful churches have a mindset that God has given them a compelling purpose to be a blessing in their community. Successful churches have a mindset that God has given them a compelling purpose. Check this out. I don't know if this is biblical or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you because you're a Christian you are ridiculously compelling. Why? Because there's no one more compelling than God. So therefore, you are also compelling. Now, before I jump into the third point here, we need to talk about the third servant because this is a big deal and it's hard. Let me go back to the passage here. Kind of refresh your memory. (laughs) then the third servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. The first century hearer would have said, hashtag duh. He didn't plant the crops. You did. You're the servant. Everybody knows this. He says, I was afraid. I would lose your money. So I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. And the master clearly disagrees (laughs) because he says, if you knew I harvested. 
Master knows he's kind and generous. God knows he's kind and generous. But at the same time, there are people and there are churches who take everything that God has given them and they point it inward at just themselves and they say, we're going to love us. We're going to do our thing. We're just going to be our style. And it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And so they point themselves at themselves. They take and they take the assets that God has given them. They bury it in the ground and then they sit on their assets. Ooh. Don't do that. Don't be the lazy servant. Take what God has given you. Use it. Bless someone else with it. Succeed on purpose. Because there is a very simple plan. Very simple plan. It's two parts. Number one, use your God-given wiring experiences, and skills to make your world a better place. What do I mean by that? You be the very best version of you you could possibly be. Tamisha, I can't be you. Bob, I can't be you. I don't work where you work. I don't have the same skill set that you have. Lori, I can't be you. But you need to be you in your family, where you work, in your neighborhood, in that other neighborhood that you don't ever go to, in this city. Could you imagine what it would look like if at some point in time, City Council decided, you know what? That church and all the churches, we need to shut them all down. Because we're not getting collecting any city taxes for those guys. And then the mayor stood up and said, you can't do that. Why? Because while I don't necessarily share the faith of that church, this community needs that church to be there. This community needs that group of people blessing us. That church does amazing things. And if you dare shut them down, I myself will stand there and stop you from doing so. Make your world a better place. And part two, invite someone with you. Whether you go serve at a local homeless shelter, whether you make chemo caps like our Angel Arms Ministry does, whether you go down to the public library and read to little kids, However it is that God has wired you and experienced you and given you talents and skills and placed his Holy Spirit inside of you, however God has done that for you, do that and then bring somebody else with you. Because what will happen is they will look at you and go, okay, now, why do you do this? You work full time, more than full time. And you got family and commitments. How do you have time for this? And you'll say, 
I have to do this because God has blessed me in such a way that it just is abundant and it overflows and this is the best outlet I have for it, okay? It's like the little teapot. I, either I explode or I, it leaks out, okay? Come on. And that person goes, wow, where does that come from? It comes from God. The maker and giver of all good things who saved me and loves me. And he can do the same for you. That is a compelling witness. That is a mindset that succeeds. Now, whether you bring someone with you as you serve, or you bring someone with you as you worship, or you bring someone with you as you go to life group and do community together, Bring someone with you. I talk to pastors of churches much larger than ours. And we talk about how in the world do we grow our churches? Not because we want just big numbers, but because I think it matters that whenever there's a a, a group of people that that are compelling to the outside world, that that they are naturally draw people in. Just part of the deal. And they'll say, well, here's what we do. We create an invite culture around here. And I say, okay, how do you do that? And they say, God moves here. And people invite their friends because they know that their friends are dying and lost and going to hell. And their friends are living meaningless lives. And they need this place. So my challenge for you is that if God has blessed you in this place, if God has moved in your life in this place, You need, somebody else in your family needs that. Somebody else in your community needs that. Somebody at your workplace needs that. Bring them. How dare you take the gift that God has given you and sit on it. It's an insult to God and what he's done in your life. So a church that succeeds on purpose has a mindset. Here's the mindset. To use what God has given There it comes. There it is. Use what God has extravagantly given to you. Be a blessing to others. And then double the return by bringing someone else along. Let's be a people that doubles the return. Could you imagine what it would look like if this room was full? And I had a good problem of having to add an extra service. I was doing some calculations this week. This campus could probably handle about 800 people on a Sunday. Got the parking, got the seats, got the group spaces, the kids spaces, all of it's the here. And God is already moving in your life and in mine. There's no reason why you can't bring someone else along. To have that mindset of a church that succeeds not a church that dies. And as we move into a new era with a new lead pastor, that's a mindset that he's going to expect us to have already. So let's do it. Let's change our worlds together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this message is challenging. It's challenging because it kind of puts into stark contrast those who succeed and those who fail. And God, I never want to be one of those who fail. But God, I also know 
and recognize that there are moments whenever I don't live up to all that you would want for me. So God, forgive me for those moments. Whenever I hold back, whenever I don't invest in my community, whenever I don't invite someone to join me. Father, thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross that saves me from that sin and all of my sins. Father, I just pray for this community of believers, this church, whether they are online or in person here in the room, God, you have wired them and built them on purpose as masterpieces of your handiwork. God, I pray that you will send us out of this place with a fire in our belly that says someone else needs what I've got, an overabundance of blessing from God himself. And God, we will praise you. We will honor you and we will glorify you for all that you do through us, for the community around us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.